The Cutting Room Podcast would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsors. So I'd like to take this moment to thank Grass Valley for their support of the program. Check out Grass Valley's new EDIUS 6 software at www.grassvalley.com. What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Okay, I know it's been a while since our last episode, but I have a really good reason for it. In this episode, I interview Walter Murch, and it took us a while to set up the interview as well as get the interview cut and put together for you guys. Walter Murch has won numerous awards for his work as both an editor and a sound designer. He is recognized the world over, and his book, In the Blink of an Eye, has become mandatory reading for many editors. Now, this was originally shot as a video, so if you want to check out the video, you can go to www.artoftheguillotine.com. And just a note, before we get started, part two of this interview will be posted just after December 5th. I'm out of town on a small project, and so when I get back, I'll be posting it right then. In the meantime, please enjoy my interview with Walter Murch. When you're looking at the overall film, how do you determine the cuts for a particular sequence and for the structure of the overall film? Well, the, um, the, the, the so-called rule of six was really me um, trying to analyze what are the uh, kind of the, the things that would define a, uh, a cut that was effective. And it doesn't mean that a cut has to have all of those six things. Uh, at the top is emotion, which is simply how does it make you feel? You know, if, if there isn't an under uh, current of emotion uh, throughout the film, the film really doesn't have much of a chance at, at uh, uh, keeping an audience. Then story, does it advance the story? Uh, do we understand what's going on? Um, rhythm, is it, does, it, does the cut happen at the right moment? Uh, whatever that, that may be. Um, and then there was uh, what I call eye trace, which is you know, where, where is the attention field of the, of the audience at the moment of the cut? And in the incoming frame, are we looking at something interesting in that same area? So how, how are we uh, using or abusing the focus of attention of the audience? And then there's the uh, translation of three-dimensional space into the two-dimensional space, basically the, the whole concept of the stage line, you know, which, what direction are actors looking uh, by implication. And then there's the uh, understanding of the three-dimensional space that they are, are moving in. If you, uh, if you can satisfy all six of those things, great. Uh, if you can't, then my suggestion is start chipping away at the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, if, if the first thing to let go of is three-dimensional space, the next thing to let go of is uh, two-dimensional translation, then the focus of attention of the audience. Uh, once you start getting into rhythm, story, and emotion, those are things you really have to, have to hold on to. Uh, but if you have to let go of something, let go of rhythm, and then story, and the last of all, emotion. So how does how did that translate into real world uh, experience? Um, at that point, I'm more like a musical performer. 
so I'm not overly uh, conscious of applying all these rules at any one moment. So this is, this is me looking back theoretically on something sort of after the fact. As I'm doing it, it I, I'm much more like somebody playing a musical instrument and I just, uh, I, f I feel it uh, rather than overthink it. Okay. Um, so film editing and sound editing uh, are separate designations by the unions. Uh, however, many post-professionals, including yourself, work both in sound and in film editing. Uh, what effects does working on a film both as a sound designer and as a film editor have on the film and your work? And how do you maintain this dual role? Well, um, it, it, in a sports analogy, it allows me to pass the ball to myself. Um, if, uh, frequently, if you're working on a film as an editor uh, and you don't know who the person's gonna be doing the sound, it makes you try to cover more bases uh, because you are working in an uncertain future. Mm -hmm. uh, because I know that I'm gonna be doing the sound, I know what things I can let go of and what things I have to hold on to uh, in terms of picture and what things, what ideas I can let go of in picture and allow sound to, uh, to take care of. How does architecture influence or inspire you as an editor? Well, I, uh, there's a peculiarity, uh, I think, which is that uh, a lot of filmmakers either were architects or thought they were going to be architects. Um, uh, so there's a family resemblance uh, between film and architecture. Both of them are artistic endeavors, but they have very large logistical uh, issues to, to cope with. Um, you know, you're harnessing hundreds and sometimes thousands of people on projects that can cost hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and they all have to come in on schedule, on budget, and they are consumed, in a sense, by um, uh, the public at large. You know, a, a building is a public statement of um, something about the people who built it, something about the city in which it's built, something about its location. Uh, films uh, have a, uh, you know, a cultural context. And so it, it's, a, it's an analogy that comes naturally both from a technical point of view and from an artistic point of view and from an economic point of view. Malaparte is uh, it was interesting just uh, being next door at the uh, uh, at the Bell Lightbox because the the sixth floor is the Malaparte Terrace, and I, I asked about it because I've just been. Uh, corresponding with somebody about Malaparte in the last couple of days. Uh, so it was strange seeing his name there. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out the architect was influenced by the building that Malaparte designed in uh, Capri, uh, which was his home um, that he, he designed and built it in the late 1930s. And it was the home was then featured in Godard's Contempt. Mm -hmm. So there's a filmic architectural connection there, which uh, it was just it was wonderful to see see that next next door. You've talked about the need for filmgoers to share the experience of cinema in the dark room. With the proliferation of the new handheld devices, 
smaller, more portable screens. How do you think this is going to change cinema and the group experience? No, we're clearly moving into uh, a new paradigm. Uh, uh, and in that sense, it's uncharted. We don't know how it's going to affect it. It could be that uh, what we know as television will kind of disappear and we'll be left with the personal uh, viewing, uh, either on you know, your own screen or that screen tapping into a large screen where you can watch the film with uh, your family or friends. Um, and then the theatrical experience of watching a film will become uh, even more valuable in, in that context. Mm -hmm. So, I, but we don't know. You know, it's. Uh, I was I was in India a few years ago teaching uh, at the film school in Pune, and uh, I was w w waiting outside to go into the class and uh, the. The student who'd invited me over was uh, watching a girl looking at one of these devices, and he said, that's the, the history of the last 30 years in India is, 30 years ago it was everyone looking at the screen, and 15 years ago it was everyone looking at television, and now it's everyone looking at the screen, so up, forward, and down. So, um, my question is to you is if so, uh, somebody came to you and said we can implant a chip in the back of your brain so that you can watch film simply by thinking a certain kind of thought uh, and then uh, the film will appear to you in some form inside your head, would you do that? Well that's part one of my interview with Walter Murch. I'd like to thank Walter Murch. Tage Barbara, our cameraman, and the producer, Brian Atkinson. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.